Chapter Seventeen of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Seventeen. Sir Abraham Haphazard. Mr. Harding was shown into a comfortable inner sitting room, looking more like a gentleman's book room than a lawyer's chambers, and there waited for Sir Abraham. Nor was he kept waiting long. In ten or fifteen minutes he heard a clatter of voices speaking quickly in the passage, and then the attorney-general entered. "'Very sorry to keep you waiting, Mr. Warden,' said Sir Abraham, shaking hands with him, "'and sorry, too, to name so disagreeable an hour, but your notice was short, and as you said to-day I named the very earliest hour that was not disposed of.' Mr. Harding assured him that he was aware that it was he that should apologize." Sir Abraham was a tall, thin man, with hair prematurely grey, but bearing no other sign of age. He had a slight stoop, in his neck rather than his back, acquired by his constant habit of leaning forward as he addressed his various audiences. He might be fifty years old, and would have looked young for his age, had not constant work hardened his features, and given him the appearance of a machine with a mind. His face was full of intellect, but devoid of natural expression. You would say he was a man to use, and then have done with, a man to be sought for on great emergencies, but ill-adapted for ordinary services, a man whom you would ask to defend your property, but to whom you would be sorry to confide your love. He was bright as a diamond, and as cutting, and also as unimpressionable. He knew everyone whom to know was an honor, but he was without a friend, he wanted none, however, and knew not the meaning of the word in other than its parliamentary sense. A friend. Had he not always been sufficient to himself, and now, at fifty, was it likely that he should trust another? He was married, indeed, and had children, but what time had he for the soft idleness of conjugal felicity? His working days, or term times, were occupied from his time of rising to the late hour at which he went to rest, and even his vacations were more full of labor than the busiest days of other men. He never quarreled with his wife, but he never talked to her. He never had time to talk, he was so taken up with speaking. She, poor lady, was not unhappy. She had all that money could give her. She would probably live to be a peeress, and she really thought Sir Abraham the best of husbands. Sir Abraham was a man of wit, and sparkled among the brightest at the dinner-tables of political grandees. Indeed, he always sparkled, whether in society, in the House of Commons, or the courts of law. Coruscations flew from him, glittering sparkles as from hot steel, but no heat. No cold heart was ever cheered by warmth from him, no unhappy soul ever dropped a portion of its burden at his door. With him, success alone was praiseworthy, and he knew none so successful as himself. No one had thrust him forward, no powerful friends had pushed him along on his road to power. No, he was attorney-general, and would, in all human probability, be Lord Chancellor by sheer dint of his own industry and his own talent. Who else in all the world rose so high with so little help? A premier, indeed. Who had ever been premier without mighty friends? an archbishop, yes, the son or grandson of a great noble, or else probably his tutor, but he, Sir Abraham, had had no mighty lord at his back. His father had been a country apothecary, his mother a farmer's daughter. 
why should he respect any but himself and so he glitters along through the world the brightest among the bright and when his glitter is gone and he is gathered to his fathers no eye will be dim with a tear no heart will mourn for its lost friend and so mr warden said sir abraham all our trouble about this lawsuit is at an end mr harding said he hoped so but he didn't at all understand what sir abraham meant sir abraham with all his sharpness could not have looked into his heart and read his intentions all over you need trouble yourself no further about it of course they must pay the costs and the absolute expense to you and dr grantly will be trifling that is compared with what it might have been had if it had been continued i fear i don't quite understand you sir abraham don't you know that their attorneys have noticed us that they've withdrawn the suit Mr. Harding explained to the lawyer that he knew nothing of this, although he had heard in a roundabout way that such an intention had been talked of, and he also at length succeeded in making Sir Abraham understand that even this did not satisfy him. The Attorney General stood up, put his hands into his breeches pockets, and raised his eyebrows, as Mr. Harding proceeded to detail the grievance from which he now wished to rid himself. I know I have no right to trouble you personally with this matter, but as it is of most vital importance to me, as all my happiness is concerned in it, I thought I might venture to seek your advice. Sir Abraham bowed and declared his clients were entitled to the best advice he could give them, particularly a client so respectable in every way as the warden of Barchester Hospital. A spoken word, Sir Abraham, is often of more value than volumes of written advice. Uh, the truth is, I am ill-satisfied with this matter as it stands at present. I do see, I cannot help seeing, that the affairs of the hospital are not arranged according to the will of the founder. None of such institutions are, Mr. Harding, nor can they be. The altered circumstances in which we live do not admit of it. Uh, quite true that is quite true but i can't see that those altered circumstances give me a right to eight hundred a year i don't know whether i ever read john hiram's will but were i to read it now i could not understand it what i want you sir abraham to tell me is this am i as warden legally and distinctly entitled to the proceeds of the property after the due maintenance of the twelve beadsmen Sir Abraham declared that he couldn't exactly say in so many words that Mr. Harding was legally entitled to, etc., 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 and ended in expressing a strong opinion that it would be madness to raise any further question on the matter, as the suit was to be, nay, was, abandoned. Mr. Harding, seated in his chair, began to play a slow tune on an imaginary violoncello. "'Nay, my dear sir,' continued the Attorney General, there is no further ground for any question. I don't see that you have the power of raising it. I can resign, said Mr. Harding, slowly playing away with his right hand as though the bow were beneath the chair in which he was sitting. What? Throw it up altogether, said the Attorney General, gazing with utter astonishment at his client. Did you see those articles in the Jupiter? said Mr. Harding, piteously, appealing to the sympathy of the lawyer. Sir Abraham said he had seen them. 
this poor little clergyman cowed into such an act of extreme weakness by a newspaper article was to sir abraham so contemptible an object that he hardly knew how to talk to him as a rational being hadn't you better wait said he till dr grantly is in town with you wouldn't it be better to postpone any serious step till you can consult with him mr harding declared vehemently that he could not wait and sir abraham began seriously to doubt his sanity of course said the latter if you have private means sufficient for your wants and if this i haven't a sixpence sir abraham said the warden god bless me why mr harding how do you mean to live mr harding proceeded to explain to the man of law that he meant to keep his precentorship that was eighty pounds a year and also that he meant to fall back upon his own little living of crabtree which was another eighty pounds that to be sure the duties of the two were hardly compatible but perhaps he might effect an exchange and then recollecting that the attorney-general would hardly care to hear how the service of a cathedral church is divided among the minor canons stopped short in his explanations sir abraham listened in pitying wonder i really think mr harding you'd better wait for the archdeacon this is a most serious step one for which in my opinion there is not the slightest necessity and as you have done me the honour of asking my advice i must implore you to do nothing without the approval of your friends a man is never the best judge of his own position a man is the best judge of what he feels himself i'd sooner beg my bread till death than read such another article as those two that have appeared and feel as i do that the writer has truth on his side have you not a daughter mr harding an unmarried daughter i have said he now standing also but still playing away on his fiddle with his hand behind his back i have sir abraham and she and i are completely agreed on this subject pray excuse me mr harding if what i say seems impertinent but surely it is you that should be prudent on her behalf she is young and does not know the meaning of living on an income of hundred and sixty pounds a year on her account give up this idea believe me it is sheer quixotism the warden walked away to the window and then back to his chair and then irresolute what to say took another turn to the window the attorney-general was really extremely patient but he was beginning to think that the interview had been long enough but if this income be not justly mine what if she and i have both to beg said the warden at last sharply and in a voice so different from that he had hitherto used that sir abraham was startled if so it would be better to beg my dear sir nobody now questions its justness yes sir abraham one does question it the most important of all witnesses against me i question it myself my god knows whether or no i love my daughter but i would sooner that she and i should both beg than that she should live in comfort on money which is truly the property of the poor it may seem strange to you sir abraham it is strange to myself that i should have been ten years in that happy home and not have thought of these things till they were so roughly dinned into my ears i cannot boast of my conscience when it required the violence of a public newspaper to awaken it but now that it is awake i must obey it 
when i came here i did not know that the suit was withdrawn by mr bold and my object was to beg you to abandon my defence as there is no action there can be no defence but it is at any rate as well that you should know that from to-morrow i shall cease to be the warden of the hospital my friends and i differ on this subject sir abraham and that adds much to my sorrow but it cannot be helped and as he finished what he had to say he played up such a tune as never before had graced the chambers of any attorney-general he was standing up gallantly fronting sir abraham and his right arm passed with bold and rapid sweeps before him as though he were embracing some huge instrument which allowed him to stand thus erect and with the fingers of his left hand he stopped with preternatural velocity a multitude of strings which ranged from the top of his collar to the bottom of the lappet of his coat sir abraham listened and looked in wonder as he had never before seen mr harding the meaning of these wild gesticulations was lost upon him but he perceived that the gentleman who had a few minutes since been so subdued as to be unable to speak without hesitation was now impassioned nay almost violent you'll sleep on this mr harding and to-morrow i have done more than sleep upon it said the warden i have lain awake upon it and that night after night i found i could not sleep upon it now i hope to do so the attorney-general had no answer to make to this so he expressed a quiet hope that whatever settlement was finally made would be satisfactory and mr harding withdrew thanking the great man for his kind attention Mr. Harding was sufficiently satisfied with the interview to feel a glow of comfort as he descended into the small old square of Lincoln's Inn. It was a calm, bright, beautiful night, and by the light of the moon even the chapel of Lincoln's Inn and the sombre row of chambers which surrounded the quadrangle looked well. He stood still a moment to collect his thoughts and reflect on what he had done and was about to do. He knew that the Attorney-General regarded him as little better than a fool but that he did not mind. He and the Attorney-General had not much in common between them. He knew also that others, whom he did care about, would think so too. But Eleanor, he was sure, would exult in what he had done, and the bishop he trusted would sympathize with him. In the meantime he had to meet the archdeacon, and so he walked slowly down Chancery Lane and along Fleet Street, feeling sure that his work for the night was not yet over. When he reached the hotel, he rang the bell quietly and with a palpitating heart. He almost longed to escape round the corner and delay the coming storm by a further walk around St. Paul's churchyard. But he heard the slow, creaking shoes of the old waiter approaching, and he stood his ground manfully. End of chapter 17 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota